Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Dr. Krista Ruffini. Krista is an assistant professor at Georgetown University in the McCourt School of Public Policy. Krista, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Ruffini here. We actually met at the Southern Economic Association conference last month, and she was my mentor in a workshop I participated in with CSWEP. For those of you that don't know, CSWEP is the Committee on the Status of Women in the Economics Profession, and I highly recommend attending their workshop. So I'm really happy to have Krista on here so I can hear more about her research because she's already heard about mine in that workshop. And today we are talking about your paper co-authored with Dr. Nora Gordon on school nutrition and student discipline, effects of school-wide free meals. But before we get into that, um, I want to hear more about your background in economics. Where did you attend school? What other work have you done? And what got you so interested in these kind of health-related economic topics? Yeah, that's that's a really great question. And just to underscore something that you mentioned earlier about CSWAP and the mentoring workshops, um, I think opportunities like that are a really great way to build up a pipeline in economics, because just from a personal perspective, I came to economics and, in fact, just an academic career in a really roundabout way. So I started my undergrad at Boston University, and I wanted to do some type of long-form journalism on topics related to poverty and marginalized communities. So I started out as a dual um, journalism and political science major, and I was forced to take Econ 101 as a prerequisite. I tried very hard to get out of it, and I was not successful. Um, But quickly, after a couple of weeks, I realized that the tools that microeconomics provides us can help us answer a lot of the questions that I was interested in. Um, I I really liked math, working with numbers, and I just found myself kind of gravitating more and more um, towards economics and away from more um, communications or political science types of courses. So after my undergrad, then I went on to do my MPP at the London School of Economics. And I wanted to do an MPP because most of the questions that I was interested in, including Um, work on the paper that we'll talk about today, really get at um, policy relevant questions. That is, how do these government policies affect um, various dimensions of individual well-being? So after my MPP, then I spent a couple years doing policy-oriented work in D.C., and that was a really fantastic experience. And we'll get back to this in a little bit, but working in the policy space before my PhD turned out to be super helpful in just shaping my academic work. Um, First, just learning about new policies that were getting off the ground. A lot of times these natural experiments that we're exploring um, come about just by idiosyncrasies in regulation or legislation that's completely unintended, just happens by random hands. Um, Second, This experience helped me to identify some of the outstanding questions that 
um, the policy community was interested in on existing policies. And then seeing how academic research can inform the policy making process. So kind of the final capstone was was going back and and doing my PhD where I focused on um, labor and public economics. So that's funny that you mentioned that you started off as a journalism poli-sci dual major, because that was also my route in undergrad. And then I realized that I love the analytical side of journalism, such as investigative journalism, took an econ class. And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is what I want to do. And uh, somehow wound it up in a PhD, you know, five years later. Uh, Yeah. So that's cool to hear that. Um, So today, like I said, we're talking about your paper on school nutrition and student discipline, the effect of school-wide free meals. So what is the main research question that you were looking to answer in this paper? And what are the highlighted findings of this paper before we dive into the details? The main question that we're asking whether making nutritional assistance universal within a school, that is whether offering free school meals to all students, regardless of their family's individual circumstances, can affect disciplinary action. And we're measuring disciplinary action as out-of-school suspensions. Now, there are two motivations for this connection and why we might think that nutritional assistance can affect students' behaviors or um, the discipline outcomes. First, we know that nutritional assistance through programs like SNAP food stamps can improve children's outcomes, but these universal school meals programs are quite different from other forms of nutritional assistance in that they aren't linked to household income or finances. The person that's gaining access to this form of nutritional assistance is very different in universal programs than in means-tested programs. We expect the marginal recipients in universal programs to come from slightly less disadvantaged backgrounds. And we might think that these students could respond differently to forms of assistance than other types of students. Um, Second, on the discipline, when we started writing this paper, there was really this explosion of interest in the effects of exclusionary discipline on students' well-being. I think normally when we're thinking about papers that are looking at the effect of various policies on students, we just naturally turn to test scores. Um, Test scores are this measure that we think is indicative of some type of academic Um, ability or learning, and we measure test scores pretty routinely, and they're available in a wide variety of settings. Um, But there's been some pushback uh, against using test scores as kind of the sole marker of um, student outcomes. And when we were writing this paper, there became this new data available on student discipline Now, we know from these data that students of color are more likely to receive out-of-school suspensions, and we also know that receiving suspensions in school can lead to worse outcomes in the long term, including increased engagement with the criminal justice system. So we went into this project thinking that suspensions are this marker of student outcomes that are different than our usual test score measures and also might be predictive of longer-term consequences on dimensions that things like test scores are not. Um, So with that motivation, we are mapping cross-state variation in the implementation of the Community Eligibility Program, or CEP, to school-level discipline data from the Department of Education's Civil Rights Data Collection Database. 
Now, the program that we're looking at, CEP, is going to be the largest school-wide free meal program. So before, about, before the pandemic, about 25% of students attended a CEP school. And importantly, and this gets back to those random decisions in the legislative process, schools became eligible to participate in this program at different times that just depended on the state in which they were located. Nothing to do about the school's overall disciplinary environment or other things that were going on that were unique to the school. And the order of in which the schools became eligible was just determined by the USDA secretary. And so we use this variation in eligible timing across states in a differences and differences framework, where we're comparing changes in suspension rates within a school before and after CEP eligibility relative to schools that would eventually adopt programs that had similar incentives to participate, but did not become eligible to participate in that year. And so we're focusing on schools that implement CEP at any point in order to kind of focus on the group of schools that have the similar incentives to participate in the program. Um, and then for our results, we're really going to zoom in and focus on elementary schools. And the motivation for this is even though suspension rates are higher in secondary schools, these um, middle and high schools are also more likely to have their a la carte offerings. And so students might not be consuming the traditional school meal on a tray type of um, meal. So our headline finding is that school-wide free meals reduce suspensions for white male elementary students by about 17%. Now, before CEP, um, these students had a base suspension rate of about 5.7%. The reduction that we observed coincides with about a one percentage point decrease. We also see larger reductions in suspension in areas that have higher poverty rates. And our estimates for other groups, including Black and Hispanic students and female students, are suggestive of a smaller reduction in suspensions, but in general, those results aren't statistically significant. So all said, our findings are consistent with school meals, um, meeting an unmet need in disadvantaged communities, and providing benefits to students who are not likely to qualify for income-based programs. So the Community Eligibility Program, that's the program that you're evaluating, and this was a provision that was part of the Healthy, Hungry, Free Kids Act of 2010. So for our listeners, could you give a, um, a little more details on the CEP program and what it did and how, what was its, uh, the mechanisms by which it aimed to reduce child hunger? And could you also give a little details about that qualification mechanism that you were talking about? How does a school qualify exactly for CEP meals? So CEP was just one component of this large reauthorization of the school meals program. So other things in this legislation included things like increasing the amount of produce that was served, increasing whole grains, and then updating the calorie floors and ceilings. So CEP um, is building off of some earlier initiatives to offer universal school meals to all students. And so the way this program works is if a school were to choose to implement CEP, all students are going to receive 
of free school meals. So they can go into the cafeteria, they can get a school meal, and this meal is provided at no cost to their families. Under the traditional program, the way eligibility was usually determined was families would fill out this form at the beginning of the school year, just self-reporting their income. And based on these self-reports, if they said their income was below a certain level, they could qualify for the meal program. So some of these forms are still collected just because the share of free and reduced price lunch students feeds into other types of education programs, such as Title I funding um, and some of the technology funds. Um, but essentially, the impetus for making school meals universal was just the recognition that the process of drafting these forms and sending them out to all the students, collecting them, processing them can put a really big administrative burden on schools. And we usually don't think of schools as performing this type of task that's more similar to a welfare agency. So one of the rationales for the program was just to reduce administrative costs, make the program simpler to administer, and then also increase access to schools. Now, as you mentioned, not all schools are eligible to participate in the program. And so the way that eligibility is determined is schools are eligible to participate if at least 40% of their student body is receiving another form of income assistance. So most commonly, this comes about in terms of SNAP or food stamp benefits, um, but also families that are receiving things like TANF, um, Medicaid in some states are also kind of counted in that 40%. And then schools receive reimbursement from the federal government at 1.6 times the share of students that are um, participating in these other programs. And that 1.6 multiplier is just based on historical data that looks at share of um, the total free meal population is receiving these other forms of income assistance. And I will mention there's some um, proposals in the pipeline that are looking to reduce that eligibility threshold. So allowing schools that have slightly lower rates of SNAP receipt to participate in the program, and then also making that reimbursement rate more generous so that more schools are incentivized to participate. So that's interesting. So the way that a school becomes eligible is if 40% of its population is receiving um, some other kind of financial assistance. So this is different from other nutrition programs in that the entire school gets the free meals. It's not just certain families or certain students that are eligible. And you mentioned this in your paper that this could, because every student in the school is now going to receive a free meal, that this could potentially reduce the stigma of those students before who, you know, there's only like 30 or 40 students qualifying for a free meal and that there was some stigma around that. And I thought that was kind of interesting. What do we know about how stigma can potentially make free school meals less effective for these low income students who are eligible for them? First, I'll note that, especially for economists, um, identifying stigma is really hard because we're usually looking at data that is tracking consumption or outcome data, and we kind of back out this proxy for stigma by looking at these data. 
But I will say what we know from work in New York City is that universal school meals programs um, that predated CEP increased participation in free meals programs for all students, including those students that were already eligible to be receiving the school meal. So this pattern is consistent with universal meals um, reducing stigma. It's not necessarily the final word, but that's what's going on. But these patterns are consistent with this stigma reducing effect. Um, and then we also have survey evidence from school directors in CEP schools um, that were conducted as part of the USDA's initial evaluation of the program. And these school directors who are really kind of the frontline workers and observing what's going on in the cafeterias um, reported that they thought that the um, that CEP and universal programs would reduce stigma as well. I think that's really interesting to note that um, as economists, it's really important to identify stigma, but it's difficult to do so when you're trying to set up a causal identification. So now I kind of want to get into what do we know about how food insecurity can influence externalized behaviors, especially among young school age children? And what other similar work has been published that closely resembles um, this paper of yours? I'll take a step back and just for listeners that might not be um, familiar with what externalizing behaviors are. In general, these are actions that a person does that have an effect on others. So these are things like um, getting along with others, disruptive behavior, kind of, um, you know, when I was in elementary school, if you did a externalizing behavior, you would get your name written on the board. And after so many marks, after your name, some disciplinary action would happen. Um, so those are the types of things that we're looking at. Now, food insecurity is associated with a whole host of negative outcomes for children in the short term. Um, and we also see these adverse effects when children reach adulthood. So in the short term, there's work in public health that documents that externalizing behaviors are worse when students are hungry or experiencing food insecurity. Um, and then we also have some work in economics that shows that as SNAP benefits are exhausted, so as we get towards days 20, 21, 29 of the quote unquote SNAP month, students are more likely to be disciplined at school. And then since our paper um, came out, there's also been a lot of really great studies that are looking at outcomes similar to what we're looking at, um, but using rich student level data for a single state. So these um, papers are also looking at the effect of universal school meals on student discipline, but are using um, just information from one state and the effects on individual students. And these papers also document some improvements in discipline um, or academics. So it's altogether kind of pointing towards this general improvement um, in external behaviors or reduction in these disruptive behaviors that are stemming from increased nutritional assistance. So we know that student success, and I'm a student myself, so I know this, is due to numerous factors. Part of it is how much a student is investing 
in the course and studying. Um, but there's also a lot of evidence that student success is due to many outside factors, one of which can be food insecurity in the household. So what do we know about how food insecurity in the home can specifically affect students' performance in the classroom? So we've already talked about externalized behaviors, but what about the academic outcomes? Do we know anything about how food insecurity can affect um, student academic outcomes? Like you mentioned, and very much in line with our intuition, um, there's a lot of work in economics and pu public health showing this correlation between um, families that are experiencing food insecurity also tend to have um, worse academic achievement among um, students. So this relationship um, is largely observational. And so it could stem from a whole series of factors. I know, you know, when I'm hungry, it's really difficult to concentrate on things. Um, but food security could also be indicative of just overall heightened stress or financial insecurity um, in the home. Now, when we look at the causal relationship between food insecurity and children's academic outcomes, here we want to try to identify something that's going to change families' um, food insecurity and see um, whether reducing food insecurity then translates into changes in academic achievement. And here we have some evidence that programs like the School Meals Program um, and SNAP can increase both test scores. Um, I've done some work on this, again, in the context of CP. Um, we also have information from the traditional income-based um, form of school meals showing this relationship. And then we also see that students tend to perform better on tests in the days that immediately predate the um, SNAP benefits. So those first couple of months after SNAP benefits are paid out, students tend to perform better on tests. Um, and then looking towards the longer run, there's also some evidence that increased nutritional assistance in the form of school meals for kids can even increase educational attainment. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when I'm hungry, I can't focus. And for a low income young child who is facing, you know, constant food insecurity, that's not only a nuisance, but that is chronic stress on that child. Um, so I can definitely see how that affects their academic outcomes. Um, so now we're getting into the paper. What kind of data, and you kind of mentioned this in the beginning, but can you give us some more details? What kind of data do you use to answer your research questions? Yeah, so we use this really cool data set on suspensions from the Department of Education. And so this is part of the civil rights data collection effort. This effort started in 2010, and then it became universal for all schools in 2012. It was just um, reported for a sample of schools, and it's re been reported every two years since then. And these data include information on the number of suspensions um, by type. So what's an in-school suspension, out-of-school suspension, and also by student demographics. So we have information on the number of suspensions for um, female students, for male students, for um, white students, Black students, Hispanic students, and then the intersection of all of those. Um, these data also include information on other measures of student performance. If any listeners are interested in doing a big data dive, 
Um, there's information on things like bullying, um, chronic absenteeism, and a host of other types of um, behaviors. So then we link these data on suspensions to CEP participation data that we collected from a FOIA request, the USDA, and then in more recent years, the Department of Education. And as a side note for grad students in particular who might be listening, um, I spent many weekends coding and cleaning this data, the um, data that came from USDA. Um, involved a lot of string matching and wasn't identified by any type of numerical identifier. Um, and this was certainly a frustrating process when you're in the weeds, um, but it turned out to be a super great investment. And I know it often doesn't seem like it, but grad school can be a really good time to make these investments in labor-intensive data cleaning. So I've used this data as the foundation for at least four projects to date. Um, so I, I'd like to think that those um, those those long tiresome weekends were were somehow worth it. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that. I just finished a computer science class on uh, machine learning in Python, and it was so grueling to learn how to code in Python and doing string matches. But it's worth it because I'm definitely going to use this code uh, at least for one chapter of my dissertation. So I know the feeling. And for the grad students listening, yes, it is a good investment in grad school. Um, so the data that you have on uh, school suspension. So I'm kind of curious to hear why, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, why should we focus on out-of-school suspensions as an outcome variable of interest? Why should we be paying attention to that um, for student outcomes? So we focus on out-of-school suspensions because we think that school suspensions that are out of school, so kids cannot enter the school building for a certain period of time, are going to just mechanically result in this loss of learning time. And so just by being out of the classroom, we might expect that these out of school um, suspensions then translate to worsened academic performance later down the road. And then we also focus on suspensions just in light of recent work showing that these actions can um, have really long-term severe adverse effects. So kids that are suspended are more likely to have some type of engagement with the criminal justice system when they reach adulthood. And importantly, we're just observing kind of the outcome in this paper. That is, we're not really observing students' behaviors. We're just um, seeing the discipline actions. But if we think that these discipline actions reflect the types of behavior that are going on in the classroom, we also might think that if a student is suspended, it's for a reason, right? So um, if we see this reduction in suspensions, we might also expect that there's these reductions in disruptive behavior, which could improve the overall learning environment for all students, even those that are not receiving the suspensions themselves. So these out-of-school suspensions can have potentially long-term effects, is what you're saying, and loss of learning. They could have a higher likelihood of entering the criminal justice system as an adult. So there's long-term impacts. Out-of-school suspensions are not a minor thing, and that's why you're looking at them. Um, so now I want to get into the methodology. What method do you use to identify the causal effects of this community eligibility program on out-of-school suspension rates? 
we use a kind of standard differences and differences setup. And we do this because the program was very helpfully rolled out over a period of four years. So different schools are becoming eligible um, at different times. And importantly, CEP is a voluntary program. So I already kind of mentioned the eligibility criteria, but even if a school is eligible, they might not choose to participate. So in our sample period, about 50% of all of the eligible schools are actually participating in the program. And those schools that are choosing to participate are tend to be more disadvantaged than schools that are either ineligible to participate or schools that are eligible to participate but choose not to participate in the program. And so this differences and differences approach helps us get at some of the selection into the CEP um, because we're identifying our treatment timing as the date that schools became eligible to participate in CEP. And again, eligibility here is determined by the seat in which the school is located, and it's likely uncorrelated with other factors that are affecting discipline outcomes. So importantly, discipline-related measures were not part of USDA selection criteria, and the criteria that the department did use changed over the three-year pilot period. We're defining our treatment as the year in which schools became eligible to participate, and then we limit the sample to schools that participate in CP at any point by 2017 in order to focus on schools that have similar incentives um, to participate. And so these incentives might be things like baseline poverty rates or other local factors that the econometricians or the researchers cannot observe. Now, with richer data, if we had a longer time series, if the CRDC data went back to, say, 2008 or 2006, or even if we had annual data, we could be able to plot longer event studies to see whether or not there were changes in discipline in the years leading up to CEP. And if we had this data, we might do a different type of control group. But Oftentimes, the data availability are going to inform just the pragmatics of the research design. And here, because the CRDC data started in 2010 for this sample and was really only launched at a national scale in 2012, which was the first pilot year, we're not able to plot these event studies over a long, long time period. We've done robustness checks in order to see what's predictive of CEP participation and whether this changes across cohorts. And after doing these um, types of exercises, we convinced ourselves that in this setting, um, looking at the set of participating schools and using the timing of eligibility seemed to be the most reasonable approach. So for all of the grad students that are listening out there, um, could you explain why the difference in difference setup can generate a more causal estimate compared to, let's say, a basic ordinary least squares regression? And why would it be a good idea for a grad student to set up a diff and diff? So as I mentioned, um, participation into CP is not, it's not random, right? So schools are choosing whether or not to participate in this program. So if we just take kind of the bare bones OLS, 
setup where if we had our outcome of suspension rates on the left-hand side, and then just an indicator of whether or not a school participated in CEP on the right-hand side, we would expect there to be positive correlation between CEP participation and suspension rates. So in the cross-section, we see that schools that are more disadvantaged that have higher poverty rates also have higher suspension rates. And we also know that schools that participate in CEP are more likely to um, have high rates of poverty and be more disadvantaged. So without controlling for or accounting for the other factors, that are informing schools' decisions to participate in the program, we might get a biased estimate. And so with the differences and differences framework, we first include a school fixed effect. And what that does for us is we're only comparing changes in suspension rates within a school. So we're not looking at school A versus school B, we're looking at the change in school A versus the change in school B. And then we also limit the sample to schools that are choosing to participate, which also kind of helps us get at this selection problem into, into the program. Now, I will mention in passing that since we wrote this paper and since it's been published, there's just been this growth in um, econometric papers in the differences and differences literature, raising some points about what these estimates are doing when we have these staggered treatment um, designs. And I will say science is always a learning process. And I know after these papers came out, I was really curious to see the extent to which results might be different after these newer methods. And so um, we've kind of gone back and just replicated our findings using the newer approaches that are dropping basically the comparisons where we have um, schools that have been already treated as a control group and then the newly treated as the treated group. And um, things hold up under that approach too. But for grad students out there, especially those that are interested in differences and differences designs, I, I think the field's moving very, very fast. Yeah, I'm trying to implement a diff and diff right now in a, a research project I'm working on. And there's so many more tests that I need to, to verify, you know, and validate certain assumptions of the diff and diff setup. So thanks for mentioning that. Yes, grad students, please check out all of the new literature on diff and diff. Uh, I'm curious, just from a descriptive level, what do you observe in suspension rates between, if you have data on this, high income versus low income districts, is there a difference? Are there higher suspension rates in one or the other? And do we know if there is potentially a two-way causality occurring? Um, is low income causing higher suspension rates or are higher suspension rates keeping students in low socioeconomic conditions potentially into adulthood? What did you see in the data? So first, just in the cross-section, I think one thing that was surprising to us is there is this very, very strong correlation between poverty rates and suspension rates. And this relationship is positive. I don't remember what the R-squared is, but it's poverty is very predictive of suspension rates. Um, I think going into this project, we knew that the two were correlated, but I don't think we appreciated just the strength of that relationship. So that was one thing that really popped out at us. And we see this at all grade levels, at elementary school levels, middle school levels, 
um, high school levels. And we also see it across all years of our data. So it's not something that seems to have dissipated um, between at least the years of 2010 and 2016. So getting back to the reverse causality question, I think that's a really great point. And if we go back to that OLS framework, again, reverse causality might be another concern, another factor leading to bias. And so one could imagine, for example, if suspension rates, especially out of school suspension rates are high, parents might need to provide additional childcare, especially for these elementary aged um, students. And so when parents need to provide this additional childcare, they might need to take time off of work, they might need to cobble together some type of childcare arrangements, all of which are going to disrupt their work schedules and reduce their earnings capacity, which then we would expect to bolster the um, poverty rate in these um, areas. And so while reverse causality would be a concern in our standard basic OLS setup, in our setting, we try to account for this dimension um, by including these school fixed effects. So again, we're just comparing these changes um, within a school. And then we also go a step further and conduct robustness checks where we're including a whole variety of student demographics and other things that are changing within an area over time, like the unemployment rate, in order to try to account for any changes in the student composition that might be driving our results over the same period. And after we do these robustness tests, um, our results are nearly identical to our main specifications. Yeah, so this is kind of making a public policy argument almost that we should be investing in keeping kids in school and reducing suspension rates because suspension also has a consequence on the parents taking time off work. There are far more consequences um, uh, that are um, tied to suspension. It's not just about the suspension. So what are your main results? Do you find that the community eligibility program does reduce suspension rates? And can you give us some more details on that? Yeah, spoiler alert, we do find that it reduces suspension rates for some groups of students. So our headline finding is that school-wide free meals are going to reduce suspension rates for white male students. And again, we're focusing on elementary students by about 17%. So these students, um, white male elementary students, tend to be suspended at a rate of 5.7%. And so we find that CP reduced the suspension rate by one percentage point. So this is a pretty big and meaningful reduction in suspension rates for these students. So our estimates for other groups, groups like Black and Hispanic students, suggest a smaller reduction in suspension but in general, those results aren't statistically significant. Um, one mechanism that we have in mind kind of goes back to who this marginal student is that's participating in the program. So we know that um, poverty rates among communities of color are higher than among white students and participation in the school meals program also tends to be higher among um, black students and white students. And so many of these students that um, we don't observe this reduction in suspensions are likely already receiving some form of free school meals 
before the program became universal. And where we're really seeing the effect is amongst these groups of students that are more likely to become eligible for the program. Now, our data, the CRDC data, is just at the school level, and so we aren't able to track the outcomes of each individual student, but we can look at the characteristics of different student groups and um, see what we can say about characteristics that are associated with a particular group. We also find that the reduction in suspensions tends to be larger in high poverty areas. Um, so this, in combination with the types of students that are affected, is consistent with school-wide free meals, meeting an unmet need in disadvantaged communities, and providing benefits to students who would not qualify um, for more income-based programs. So it worked is what you're finding. Um, so that's really good news. And that kind of leads me into my next question. What are the, the big picture implications of this work in education and food security policy? What does this mean for how we should be investing in students and how we should be looking at um, student academic outcomes in the big picture? Yeah, so... I think it was very well put that it worked. I like it a lot. Um, I feel like that should be a lot of papers abstracts. Um, so the big takeaway is that nutritional assistance, um, specifically assistance that reaches families that might not be receiving other forms of aid, can improve students' outcomes. And if we think that disciplinary actions are representative of the learning environment, these programs can also improve the overall educational environment. Um, it also underscores that schools are a really important source of nutritional assistance for many students, right? And I think a lot of times this kind of gets lost in the discussion of these programs because so much of nutritional assistance is very much geared towards the households programs like SNAP and WIC, which have um, really positive effects for um, recipients, especially children. Um, but schools are also this really key way in which um, the governments provide aid to lower income students. And I will say that, you know, going into the pandemic, like with that lens in mind, when we see these school building closures and think about what that means for students, um, a lot of work has been focused on learning loss. Um, I have some work that's focusing on the effect of these building closures on food hardship and finding that increased nutritional assistance through other means can improve outcomes for these students. Um, and we also might want to think about the types of behavior that's going on when kids aren't in school. And that's really difficult to measure. But in terms of whether or not these behaviors are um, indicative of mental health outcomes or other types of challenges that students are facing, I think there's more that we can learn here as well. Yeah, I like that point that you brought up about the pandemic and school closures. Um, the pandemic has already been terrible. Uh, we all know that. But, you know, there's an added dimension that taking kids out of school is not only potentially contributing to a loss of learning, but also the free meals that kids get at lunch and at breakfast you know, they lose those resources when they are at home. And that's something that's key that I think is 
definitely going to be a great uh, point of research or a new research question um, that we should look into answering. So this leads me to my next question. Given the work that you've done in this area, what are some new research questions that you have found that a grad student um, would be interested in tackling? Kind of going back to the last question, I think very unfortunately, um, this is a really interesting time to be working on topics that are related to both nutritional assistance and education. Um, The pandemic has really changed the way that we do both um, through virtual learning and changes to different nutritional assistance programs. So with this changing policy environment, especially for programs that are administered at the state level, there's just, there's almost too much variation in the types of programs that are springing up and a lot of opportunities to learn more about what works and what types of strategies are are effective at meeting their stated objectives. Going back to CEP, I mentioned um, earlier on that Congress is currently considering legislation that would expand CEP eligibility to more schools and incentivize more schools to participate through this more generous reimbursement rate. So on, on the chance that that goes through, learning more about the incentives that schools face when administering the program is an area that's wide open for research. I think also how schools are administering this program in practice um, is a question that I get quite frequently. Like, how does this change? What's going on in the cafeteria? A lot of questions that are related to that line of thinking are probably very natural fits to any sociologists out there. But I think there's also work that economists can contribute as well. And then Just in the immediate term, we also know that universal school meals are rapidly expanding during this school year. And then there's also a lot that we can learn about how various policy changes affect the learning environment. So CP was just one of the changes going on affecting the policy environment, but suspensions could respond to other changes in families' living conditions. And I think this is a measure of student well-being that definitely hasn't been explored as much as test scores. And there's still a lot that we can learn about the various factors that are that are driving this measure of um, student well-being, especially given the heightened awareness of these racial and ethnic um, gaps in exclusionary discipline and types of strategies that policymakers could pursue or the effects of programs that are already existing to narrow these gaps and really try to improve well-being for all types of students. Some great ideas and research questions, and I really appreciate you talking with me today. My guest has been Dr. Krista Ruffini. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Mm